listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Nouvelle. It's not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. Or at least it doesn't have to be. With the help of experts across industries, Dirk helps you find your passion and career, as well as exposing the unknown parts of every vocation. Let's go deep. Let's find your genius zone right now. Here's Dirk Novell. Everybody, this is Dirk Novell. I'm on with Josh Metal. Josh is a uh, guy that I, you know, when I started thinking about this podcast, Josh was a guy, you know, one of those guys that comes into your life that I was like, wow, this guy is really, really good at what he does. And his range of skill sets um, are really impressive. So I'm really excited to have him on. I, I met Josh. We're in the same industry. Uh, you know, I knew about Josh. Uh, Josh was uh, a really, you know, a big deal in our business. So I knew about him. And when I met him, we were in the same coaching group. Uh, you know, I really was blown away by a lot of things, but more just what a good guy he is. And he's one of those guys that you kind of want to just latch onto and be friends with and kind of, you know, learn from. And so I, I'm going to throw it back and let Josh talk a little bit about uh, what he's doing now in terms of his career and his duties. And then uh, we'll take it from there. But welcome, Josh. Thanks, Dirk. I thought when you said uh, Josh is kind of a big deal, I thought you were going to say he was a, kind of a big deal in his own mind. So I was smiling because I, it was a legitimate compliment. <laughs> Those of you that don't know Dirk very well, he has a wicked sense of humor. So I got to be on my toes. I never know what I'm going to have to defend myself. So thanks, Dirk. I'm glad to be here with you, buddy. <laughs> no, I, 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 uh, I'll give you a little warning if I go down that road, but okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I am, you know, I'm a nice smart ass. You know, it's like funny people say you're a smart ass. I'm like, but I have good intentions. I don't, I don't want to bring people down. I just like to laugh. So I love that about you, brother. Thank you. So uh, tell us a little. I mean, you know, you're in the mortgage industry, but I'll let you um, articulate it in your own words. I mean, if someone was to walk up to you in the street in Park City and say, hey, man, what do you do? What would you say? I'd say I'm a finance and real estate guy. And uh, I help specifically physicians and medical professionals realize their dream of home ownership years before. Uh, oftentimes, they've been able to figure it out other ways. Um, and that's usually a, an interesting enough starting point for somebody to kind of continue to ask questions and and go deeper. And I think that's what you want in a good introduction, right, is, is not something that when, when somebody says, what do you do? They go, oh, conversation's over, right? You, you want it to be intriguing enough that there's follow-up questions and it leads to a conversation. So I started, Dirk, um, you know, my, my first day in mortgage, believe it or not, was on September 11th, 2001. Uh, literally, I'm driving to the, the office the first day to meet my new um, co-workers. And I'm hearing about, you know, the planes crashing and as terrible as that was. Uh, but, but you know, that was kind of one of my first lessons in mortgage was what I thought was seemingly the end of the world. That was the first really significantly major event as an adult that I'd experienced. And at that point, you know, I don't know if you remember, but it was weird. Like you didn't even feel like you could talk about business for a few weeks. Like the whole country had to mourn a little bit. Very weird and unique time to start a new profession. But ironically, as uh, challenging as that started, as you remember, that led to a whole bunch of rate cuts. Uh, mortgage rates went down precipitously over the next three or four years. 
I was able to learn the mortgage craft in an environment where rates had gone from, as I recall, they were just over eight or like, and they, and they broke into the sevens. Then we got down to like the high sixes and people were, you know, just going crazy, you know, six and seven, eights mortgage. That's unbelievable. And so I got to learn those first couple of years and cut my teeth um, having conversations that were really kind of easy to have. And that led me to, um, first of all, it just led me to get super comfortable to to call, 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 have conversations, 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 because I knew there was somebody out there that I could help and, in that environment. And I had this rule. I may have talked about this at one point, Dirk, but I, I th- when I went to work every day, they would give me a list of a, a, a list of leads. I'd have name, phone number, address, their mortgage bank, and their interest rate. And I'd have a hundred people. And I'd call through, I'd call through a hundred different names. And I, I had this rule that I wouldn't go home at night until I had at least three applications written down, you know, basically on a piece of paper. Uh, I'd woke three people up or 10 PM. That was my go home rule. I could only go home when I hit one of those three measures. So it was a good, it was a good time to get into the business. And it was a, um, it was a time where I knew there was opportunity and I was going to have to work really hard if I was going to make my way in the industry. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, I remember the, that day, nine 11, I was in Florida with a buddy. We were going to a Husky Miami game and I woke up and it happened. And I remember we were stuck there for like a week, couldn't fly, but I could hear the military planes flying over us. And you're right. It was a weird time, but you know, with weird times creates new chapters. So you started, you started your chapter in the mortgage industry. So real quick, when you go back, what, what age approximately were you when you started this business? Let's see, that would have been 22 years ago. So I'd have been 22. Oh, okay. So you're coming right out of college. College basically. Yeah. Okay. And you went to college where? University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado. Played football there, right? Yep. Had a couple years of football there and and then actually got injured. And uh, as I was rehabbing my sports injury back in Salt Lake City, where my mom lived, I met the gentleman and began training the gentleman who eventually got me into the mortgage world. So it's funny how those dots connect. So, yeah, it is interesting. That's the that's the dance that I battle on this podcast is, you know, on one hand, you know, you have to have life, you have to take action. You have yeah. to experience life and things just kind of lead in a direction. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, I think a lot, of, you know, my take is there's a lot of adults, kids coming out of college, they don't really pay attention to the obvious, the things that are like naturally unique to them, you know, the things that they were born into the world, uh, where they're different than anybody, you know, when they're leveraging their their natural skill sets. And you and I have had a lot of curriculum teaching on the zone of genius with Gay Hendricks, et cetera. So, on one hand, you need to take action, but you know, on the other hand, what I'm trying to get people to do is be a little more attentive of kind of who they are. Like, it's not so complicated sometimes in terms of, you know, what do I do? You know, a lot of kids are f- super frustrated. When you were 22 coming out of um, college, was it, was it just lending felt right because you had a large database? Um, or were there signs? Was there something about Josh at that age that kind of like, made it a logical move into the mortgage industry? Well, I, I, I grew up as a young kid on the, on, in the welfare system. So I knew from a young age that I didn't want to do that. Um, and and mm-hmm. like, ch- check that box once in a lifetime, I'm good. And I knew that I really liked 
uh, money and I really liked selling. When I was about nine years old, I entered a Boy Scouts of America competition where you'd sell tickets to the to the annual jamboree, the Boy Scouts jamboree. And I came in about two thirds of the way through the competition. The competition, as I recall, went from like when school got out to when school got back in and then the jamboree was in the fall. And in I think I had 40 days. I sold more Boy Scout Jamboree tickets than anybody in the entire state of California did in their full three-month period. And I did it, you know, in, in about a third of the time. And so from a really younger age, and then and then by the time I was 10 or 11, my mom and I were living in a in a holiday inn kind of extended stay place for a while. And I would see all these people bringing um, carryout food back to their hotel rooms. And so I had this idea on a Saturday or a Sunday that I could pop popcorn and then I, with it like an old Orvin Redenbacher popcorn machine, and then I'd bag it up, put a little butter on it. And at the time we'd go sell those bags for like a dollar or two. And, I, you know, we were into it like a quarter, maybe with, yeah. you know, the machine and everything. And I would go for hours and hours and I'd come back with, you know, 20, 30, 40, $50 from selling popcorn door to door in a hotel and going out to the pool. So I kind of early had this realization that sales was kind of going to be my place. I didn't have a problem knocking on somebody's door or following somebody through a grocery store, selling them a, a Boy Scout Jamboree ticket. And 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 real estate, I, I remember thinking really young, I thought, okay, I want to sell something that everybody needs. Like it's undisputable. You, you, you need this asset. And, and so first I thought, well, toilet paper, everybody needs toilet paper. And then I was like, no, I thought I would have to sell a lot of toilet paper to make any money. That's got that's too small. What <laughs> what does everybody need? That's like a big thing that I think I could make more money out of. And dude, I swear I was like nine years old when I had this thought process, and I was like, houses. I'm going to sell houses for sure. And my, I remember my mom asking me, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, oh, I'm going to work on a house lot. She's like, what the hell is a house lot? And I'm like, it's like a car lot, but that's where you buy houses. She's like, that's not, that's not exactly how it works, but okay, buddy, I get it. Uh, so I had that in the back of my mind. And then, um, you know, coming out of school, uh, I did marketing and economics. That was my, um, it was actually business and management, but kind of the, the classes that I loved the most were marketing and economics. And so you kind of put all that together. I loved marketing. I loved sales. I loved economics and finance and supply and demand. Like that stuff really extremely fascinated me. Um, and when I met this gentleman that, uh, so I was aware of all those things, although it was kind of like looking at a Rubik's cube and saying, you're aware you probably have enough colors to line up and make one side, you know, all one color. I hadn't put all the pieces together, but when I met this gentleman who obviously was affluent and doing well, and he said to me, I'm telling you, you would crush it in this thing. And I was like, no, I'm going back. I want to get my MBA. I, I'm not going to go do that. But all of a sudden, all those things just kind of lined up and like the Rubik's cube was all green. And, and, and I guess the, the, maybe the first takeaway is be aware of the things that that interest you and things that are fun if we're I know we're going to get to the genius zone here yeah. but things that light you up and 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 you know one of our coaches um 
Julie is always telling us the importance of journaling. So if you're a, if you're a journaler, or maybe you're just someone who has a, a pretty good awareness, start thinking about the things in your life, especially if you're young, that excite you, that you're good at. You know, when I was eight or nine and I won that Boy Scout ticket contest, I realized I'm good at that. I didn't, you know, I, that's something that I have an, a, a natural pull towards. So start thinking of those things. And as you move through your life, there will be opportunities where those things kind of line up, you know, the dots all kind of connect. And I, I would encourage you, as you said, Dirk, when you, when you're aware, when you see an opportunity where the, where the dots line up and, and you feel emotionally charged or energetic around that thing, take action, take a risk, go after that thing. And when you have the opportunity to do it, don't like half-ass do it, right? I, I didn't get a lead sheet and say, well, I'll call 10 and then I'm going to go on a date with my girlfriend. I was like, no, I'm going to call 100 or I'm going to get three applications or I'm going to wake three people up or I'm going to go home at 10 p.m. Those were my rules, non-negotiable. That happened every day. And my first year in the mortgage industry, you know, I made over $100,000. And for a 22-year-old kid, I was like, what do I do with the other uh, $80,000? <laughs> Remember, this was, this, was a, this was a long time ago, and, and, and money went a little further back then. But, but uh, yeah, that would, be my, that would be my advice. Yeah, I love what you're, where you're getting at, because <clears throat> I think when I was you know, younger, I wasn't thinking along the lines of like, things that are important to me in my career, freedom. Um, you know, I want to wake, I want to wake up with my kids and go to bed with them. I want to coach them. I don't want to miss birthdays. I don't want to miss holidays. I mean, that's non-negotiable. My dad was a pilot and he would be gone half the month, which actually was good because, because he was a tough dad, but, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I didn't want to be, you know, I wanted to be present, but the thing like you're talking about is be aware of what lights you up. Um, I love to kind of stick on that a little bit more because at, at the age of 23, 24, and I, I, you know, we learn about language, I language, but I'm going to say a lot of kids aren't thinking about things like that. They've got voices in their head from their dad or society or whatever, social media, thinking they got to go make a ton of money, buy a house on the lake, get a car. Uh, you know, how do you, you know, how do you get these young adults to step back? And, you know, I know it's different, but like any advice on, maybe trying to identify and become a little more aware or getting out of your head more into your heart. Cause a lot of these things we talk about, it took me years and years and years to really kind of understand and, and get here as far as understanding, um, you know, um, presence, right. I mean, that's, you know, if you said presence, I would have thought Christmas at 24, but you know, being present is like, is, is a totally important thing for me. Um, how would you, articulate this or try to explain this if we've got a bunch of young adults watching this right now and they're like what are you talking about you know um you know you know where i'm going on that a little bit for sure the first thing that comes up to me is that the limits that we put on ourselves are self-limiting beliefs um we go through school and 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 we're taught how to be a good employee we watch our parents and we see that they clearly have limitations as to what they understand. And when they get outside those limitations, they make mistakes. And then the lesson learned from that is, see, don't ever take a risk. 
And then we uh, we can, and I'm talking about like as human humankind, we can start to see others' limitations as our own. And then all of a sudden we're the chained elephant and we don't realize that we can pull the fricking stake right out of the ground. So the first thing that I would offer is unshackle yourself and whatever process you need to go through with that, whether that's reading, whether that's being in an inspirational group, whether that's having a mentor, um, whatever that is, be looking for every opportunity to associate yourself with people who are beyond you and have 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 clearly shed those limitations in their lives. And, and, and remember that you are at cause, right? You are not at effect of your environment. You get to decide every day, how am I going to show up? How much effort am I going to put in? What's this going to look like? And where do I want to go? I firmly believe that we can take a, a, a picture into time, into the future. And we could say, I'm going there. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know how many valleys. I don't know how many rivers. I don't know how I'm going to get through the, the uh, savannah with all the lions, but I'm going to that place. And once we set that intention of uh, we're going to that place, then there will be opportunities to get there. And it's like the, you know, in Napoleon Hill, Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, he talks about the reticular activator. And the reticular activator is like, um, you know, I bought a, a, a Jeep a, a year ago. And before I thought, you know, it'd be cool if I had a Jeep with big tires, like nobody has one of those. And then I bought one and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're everywhere. I see these things everywhere. And that's the same thing with having a clear vision of our future. If we know where we want to go in 30 years or 40 years or 10 years, we don't know how we're going to get there, but we know exactly where we want to go. Then all of a sudden the mind will start to see all the paths to get there. But if we hadn't decided that that's where we're going, because we thought there was some, um, there was some restraint that we weren't capable of, or some, some limitation that we had, as soon as we get through that and we decide where we're going, the universe is incredible. You'll start to see little paths and little ways and to get to connect the dots to get to where we want to go. Love that. I love it. Um, so let's, you know, thinking about the vision or the path or the dream, whatever that is, I, you know, I, again, going back to the mindset of a young adult, I don't know if they feel safe and I don't know if safe's the right word, but I don't even know if it's in their DNA or their vocabulary to like think about a career that they love. You know, I, I almost think sometimes work doesn't, you know, work and joy and work and fulfillment maybe don't go hand in hand at that age. Maybe that's something a lot of us experience later on. But if do you have any thoughts on um, the, the, the reality of people that you've experienced, including yourself, that have chosen a path where they're just they're in, they're joyful. They they love what they do. You know, Monday mornings are as good as Friday afternoons. Um, you know, I, I think that's something that people aren't thinking about when they associate, you know, careers as far as, you know, love and enjoyment and whatever. So do you have any thoughts on like, if you, you know, fast forward when your son's coming out of college and he's like, dad, you know, I don't know what the heck I want to do. And, you know, I know I need to make money. I've seen you kill it, you know, and I've seen, you know, our nice home and our trips, et cetera. And he's got all these, you know, things in his head about what he should and shouldn't do. 
what would you say to him, you know, just to kind of slow it down a little bit and, uh, you know, any thoughts on what criteria he should pay attention to when trying to decide his life work? For sure. I don't know if you ever heard the Jim Carrey um, graduation speech. Uh, it's an amazing speech. You could just stick it in Google. But one of the things he says inside that speech is he says that so many of us choose our path out of fear disguised as practicality. And for me, I think the scarier thing is to be the employee who doesn't care for their job 30 years down the line, who never decided to create to choose their own path, never took a risk, never worked hard enough to, to make that come to fruition, and gets to the end of their life and realizes, holy shit, I absolutely am disappointed in what I've created in my body of work. And so the first thing that I would I would I would offer is that you know when you're making a decision on a career path make sure you're not making a decision out of fear that's disguised as practicality right mm -hmm. like that's the logical thing to do that's the safe thing to do yeah well it, it, travel that path for 30 years and is that who you want to become is that where you want to end up and I, and I'll kind of add a little more color on this when I was, um, I'm going to guess I was, I think I was 19 because I, I tried to buy my first home when I was 20 and I ended up buying, no, I tried to buy my first home when I was 19 and I ended up not being able to get one under contract for a bunch of reasons. And I ended up buying my first home at 20, but I had a big goal of owning a home while I was a teenager. And my grandmother gave me um, a book from Richard Kiyos uh, Robert Kiyosaki called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that just really blew my mind, the concepts that were taught in there and the idea of creating cash flow from your investments that were beyond what your monthly expenses are so that you're literally free. He calls it escaping the rat race because you don't have to do anything anymore once you have that kind of cash flow. And in that book, he inspired me to buy my first home, which I had the intention of turning into an investment property and buying another one as soon as I possibly could. But in that book, um, he 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 has this picture called uh, and this concept called the cash flow quadrant, and this relates back to um, your what what you're going to do professionally. And in the cash flow quadrant, there's there's four sections, as as the name would sound, quadrants. Uh, you've got the employee, you have the um, self-employed, then you have the business owner and the investor. And what Robert Kiyosaki says is when you're in the employee section or the employee quadrant, you have a job um, and, and you're creating value and giving leverage and making somebody else wealthy. And by the way, you pay more taxes than any other quadrants. And I'm like, okay, that quadrant sucks. I'm not doing that. Uh, that's all I needed. And then he says, okay, now if you're self-employed, you own a job and you then go to work every day and at least you're trying to make money for yourself and there's some tax advantages, but you still own a job. And then he says, then there's the business owner. The business owner, you own a system and people work for you inside the system that you've created. 
and business owners pay less taxes than the self-employed. And then the final quadrant is the investor. The investor is where you've taken all your life's energy from your business or from your from from whatever your it could be even from your employee job. You've moved that over into investments, and now those investments spin off more income than what your expenses are. You've escaped the rat race, and at that point, money works for you. And the investor quadrant is where all the rich people are. This is what Robert said. You know, I'm, I'm, there's obviously. Uh, uh, Jamie Dimon might be an exception, right? He's an employee, he's a CEO of a major company. But in, if you took most wealthy people, they are business owners and they are investors. And he said, not only is this where most of the wealthy people hang out, but these people pay less taxes than any other quadrant. And so for me, I, I kind of took that, that cash flow quadrant and I tattooed it on my brain. And I said, okay, cool. So I know I want to be a business owner and I want to be an investor. And the next 40 years of my life is going to be towards getting to that place. Um, and then I just looked for opportunities that would take me because at the time I was in the employee quadrant and I'm like, I am not hanging out here for very long. And I'm like, how do I get to the self-employed uh, uh, quadrant? Cool. Now, how do I get to the business owner quadrant? Cool. Now, how do I get to the investor quadrant? And I just tried to move down that path through those quadrants as fast as I could. I'm I'm trying to think if there's a fifth quadrant that we're not aware of. That would be like, um, I don't know, we'd just be meditating on flying carpets together. Yeah, fishing. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, I, re I was thinking about too with you, I'm listening to you and you know, it's it's so impressive. I remember sitting in the pool with you in Costa Rica a couple of years ago, hanging out. And we were talking a little bit about your background and, you know, living with your mom and, you know, and I think it was, you know, you, you said, you know, it was not easy sometimes. And I, and I listen to you now and I, you know, I, everybody has um, a why. And, I, and I'm wondering kind of like the difference between or, or, or the, the intention of not ever going back to that mm. situation and also just you being, you know, just this motivated dude that's, you know, taken over the world that you, you know, you've done amazing things. Like how much of the, the background that you and your mom experienced is propelling you or have propelled you into this world and how much of it is just your natural interest in becoming a real estate investor? Well, first of all, I'm extremely grateful for the fact that I got to grow up in a really significant economic dichotomy. You know, there was this one side that there was some, you know, some, some financial uh, difficulties. And then my grandparents who had both came out of the Great Recession, they started a landscaping business. They were entrepreneurs. Um, they were business owners. They took all of their life's energy and money and put it into real estate and properties and land and eventually went on to build a 90-unit apartment building on top of the, the land that they used to use for their landscaping business, but they didn't need the orchard anymore. So they built a big apartment building there. And then they built bought this like 600 acre ranch in in southern Utah that they then developed and did all the improvements and sold all the lots off. So I got to see both sides of that, right? And I got to have 
and, and what I took from you know the the side of of having not enough and kind of that that scarcity side of the dichotomy that, that I described is that I it gave me a burning desire to want more, and it was burned so deeply into me that if I didn't have that experience, I don't know that. It's it's unlikely I would be the same person. I'd have the same conviction. I'd have the same passion. So my my passion, I think, comes from that experience. And then on the other side, I saw how these two kids that came out of the Great Depression that literally had nothing. You know, like my grandfather was the youngest of seven kids. He had six older sisters, and he was the only boy child and his dad died when he was 12 and it was right in the heart of the great depression and you know stories of him wearing his sister's shoes to school uh, were three miles away that he'd walk in the snow like dude like really hard times and then he turned that into this really successful entrepreneurial business and then parlayed that into all these investments so i got to see both sides of the equation and i got to live in both sides of the equation and so I got the desire from, you know, kind of growing up uh, with the scarcity, and I got the view into what abundance looked like and felt like when I got to visit my grandparents on Christmas, and, you know, there's like more food than <laughs> a football team could eat, and all the kids are opening presents, and so I think the the combination of those two opposing um, places or those two opposing experiences was really, really um, transformational and helpful for me. Yeah, I love that. Um, so let's get back a little bit into kind of the present in terms of, you know, you were a producer, you you helped people finance real estate, you started acquiring re and real estate investment properties, right? And then you, I think your mom and you and your, your wife yep. worked together and you managed that. Um, and now tell us a little bit about just kind of, you know, starting uh, being a, one of the founders of a company called Neo. Uh, you know, I know you're involved probably with production, but you probably have people that are producing and you're managing them. Like, what is your role at the company now? And, and what I really would love to do is get into kind of the things that aren't so obvious about like, what does that make? How does that make up your day? You know, what are the things you stress out about? Um, you know, what, you know, is this a, a, a seven to five gig or do you find yourself working at nights, weekends? Um, is it a job that you have to deal with a lot of people or can you be fairly independent? Uh, just give me a little color around what you do and what that lifestyle is about. Sure. So let me bring everybody up to speed, kind of like what the last 22 years look like. So the first 10 years of my mortgage career was me in the self uh, self employed quadrant essentially i was a 1099 salesperson for a mortgage company and i owned a job every day i had to build relationships do the marketing talk to the customers do the loans work with underwriting for fulfillment of the loans like all of the things to market get an opportunity and then fulfill that opportunity and and really i got i, I got good at doing that job, but I still owned a job. It was, if I wasn't there putting in the work, I wasn't getting paid. But as I was going through that first 10 years, I had always had a really high savings rate. And I always invested in things that created cash flow. I wasn't interested in owning Bitcoin or, or not that it was around then, um, or, or stocks or those types of things. I, I had a sole mission 
to create more passive income from my investments than what my outgoing expenses were. So I was saving every penny I could and then turning my current owner-occupied property into an investment property and then putting another 5 or 10% down and then rinse and repeat. And I moved uh, eight times in 12 years. Like I was just constantly moving and acquiring uh, as many properties as possible. So then let's call that the first 12 years of my career. And then at about 12 years in, I pivoted from that self-employed person who's kind of doing everything in their business to really more of a business owner in that I started to build a team. I started to build structure, processes, systems, lead generation. And I basically said, well, look, if I can, if I can recruit 20 people who are, you know, like me, then I can step out and they can do all of that, all of that job. And so that was the last 10 years was really um, getting myself to the point where I could teach others around me to do those things. And then they could have really abundant lives as well. By the way, this isn't just a, um, this, the, the ascent of an entrepreneur should benefit everyone around them. Everybody around you should be more wealthy and happier because they're in your environment than they would be outside of your environment. So as I, so I transitioned over to that business uh, owner. And again, over that last 10 years, everything I could possibly save was parlayed into more and more investments. So cash flow producing investments. So fast forward today, um, <coughs> I still run uh, our team. I'm, I'm one of the co-creators and owners of Neo Home Loans. Um, Neo has you know about 300 uh, teammates now across the country. Um, but now I'm really kind of transitioning into more and more of my time in that investor category. And, you know, as of today, um, my, my mom, as you alluded to, my wife, myself and our team that handle our real estate investments, you know, we manage about a hundred million dollar portfolio of real estate. And so now we are just focused on creating more and more cash flow, bringing in other investors that want to invest in our business with us. Um, and so it's been a really fun journey. I'm, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm realizing I've successfully navigated from employee to self-employed to business owner. And I'm in the process of kind of that final transition over the next 10 years, which will be squarely rooted in the investor quadrant. Um, in terms of schedule, um, you know, my days are, are, are pretty regimented. I was actually just on my aura app, Dirk. Uh, do, you have an, do you have an aura ring by the way? You know, I don't. And I apologize. I'm coughing. I just got a little bit of a scratch, but no, tell me about it. Uh, is it, you like it? So an aura ring, you know, it, 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 as it sounds, it just sits on your finger and, um, it, it tracks your sleeping, um, but also tells you, like your heart rate variability, which is a really strong predictor of your overall health. But um, this morning I was looking at it and it has this new feature called a body clock. And it actually calculates your natural circadian rhythms based on your activity and your heart rate and your body temperature and a few other factors. And then it tells you if you're living your schedule congruent or against your natural circadian rhythms. In other words, if I was an ER doctor and I got called into the ER at two o'clock, I'd be forcing myself to get up and go to work, right? And the reason I bring that up, what's interesting is my normal kind of circadian rhythms or body clock, as the aura ring uh, says, is uh, they says your ideal bedtime is between 7 p.m. and 8.15 p.m. 
Last night you went to bed at 7.41 p.m. So my body just, when the sun goes down, like I, I start to fade or, you know, feed me tequila and espresso and you can keep me up for a few more hours. But I start to just go down at eight o'clock and really like 7.30, like when the sun goes down. And then I'm back up, Dirk, um, around uh, four, four o'clock. So I'm usually, I'm an eight hour sleep guy. I try to get a full eight hours of sleep. Uh, in the morning, I've got a whole intentional morning routine that I do, um, which includes exercise and meditation and a really intentional hydration routine. Uh, and then I'm, you know, I'm in the office usually until about four or five. And if things go right, I'm home hanging out with my family, having dinner and reading a book by, you know, 530 or so. Yeah, you know, and I'll say that's one of the things I love about you most is I see, you know, all the time and experiences you're having with your son uh, <laughs> and you're out there fishing. And even with, you know, I saw you mountain biking the other day with your wife and it's, you know, for people that are looking at getting into this line of work, um, you know, for me, freedom uh, is huge. And I, I feel like you've carved that out really well. Um, and you can have that both in, you know, the mortgage industry, whether whatever quadrant you're in, even if you're just a producer in quadrant one, uh, it's a job that you know really allows if you perform and you can do well. It's a lifestyle that's it's really appealing, right? You don't have to. I mean, you have to be there the work, but you can move to Park City and do it. You can live in Sun Valley, you can do it. You can do it in Italy. I mean, you can go anywhere. Um, are there some things about the job? If someone's, I mean, we're talking about investor and we're talking about business owner, but let's just take uh, financing, real estate financing. Is there some things about the job that surprised you over the years? Like, wow, yes. man, uh, I didn't see this coming. And if I known this, maybe it wouldn't have deterred you from getting into this world, but maybe it might have made you think twice. Yeah, two things come up. The first is, I was just having this conversation with a good friend of mine. I, I can't remember a single piece of real estate that I ever bought. And we have 144 units that we're managing and, and, and have our owners of now. And I can't think of one of them that I didn't think that I was overspending on and that I wasn't fearful about. So that just never goes away. Um, and I think that's a healthy thing. I think that reminder should help us to you know, when we feel that fear, we should cross our T's and dot our I's and and really make sure we've been intentional about our due diligence. But what I see far too many people do and how they respond when they come up against that fear is that they succumb to the fear and they turn around and they run the other way. And I just, you know, in retrospect, I realize that the fear of not taking action is a far worse consequence than the fear of, of taking action, acknowledging that you have fear, double checking your work, and then moving forward with, with whatever that whatever that thing is. So, so that would be number one. Um, never bought a property that I didn't think I was overpaying for and that I wasn't worried about, and that's a good thing. Um, and then the second thing, Dirk, and this, the reason why this is so, um, important is because I've never heard anybody talk about it ever in all the real estate seminars I've been to all of the social media content all of the short form content snippets and social media I've never heard anybody talk about this and it's it can only be 
really experienced. You can't really understand it from the outside, but I'll try to give you a, a purview into what I'm talking about. The first um, commercial building that my mom and I bought together uh, was an eight unit apartment building on the west side of the um, state capitol building, downtown Salt Lake City. It has an incredible view up on the hill, right below the capitol, incredible view of the entire Great Salt Lake. So you can see, you know, 180 degree views as far as the eye can see, just gorgeous sunsets. And, and when we bought that building, I was sure we were overpaying for it. We paid 315,000 for eight units. Um, and you know, today that's a two and a half million dollar building. Um, but here's what I wouldn't have guessed. When we bought the building, the rents in that property were renting between $275 a month and $315 a month. So, you know, roughly $300 a month. We bought that building 21 years ago, I believe it was right. It was like the first year I got into mortgage. We bought that building. Seller financed it for us, by the way. Um, so 21 years later, guess what the rents on average in that building? You said and it's worth two five? It's worth two five. There's eight units. And when we bought it, it was renting out about 275 to $315 a month. Uh, 2000 $1675 a month. So you're close. So that is a that is a that is a 550% increase in rental income over that 21 year period, which is mind blowing enough, but but if you think about, you know, as the rents go up, guess what happened to the mortgage? Well, the mortgage went sideways for about 5 years, then we refinanced it. And the rate went down and the payment went down. Then we were in it for about another seven years. And then the rates went down again and we refinanced it. And the rates went down and the payment went down. Meanwhile, the rents are just doing this, right? And so the delta, the difference between the mortgage payment after having refinanced that building three times and what the rents have gone up 550%, it's like, the mortgage payment used to be 90% of the rental income, and now the cash flow is 90% of the rental income. And I would have never have guessed that it would have been that extreme. The delta between the mortgage payment and the cash flow in 20 years, if you told me it was as big as it is, I would have, I, I couldn't have comprehended it. And I never hear anybody talk about it. I've called it, I, 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 I talk about it when I talk about investments now, I say, you know, people, when you... When you own real estate, you get paid in five ways. You have you have uh, cash flow, that's your monthly income. You have appreciation, which is the value of the property going up. You have amortization, which is the the note every month, a certain amount goes towards principal, so you're paying off the indebtedness. You have depreciation, that's a tax code word to that helps you offset your income, so you actually pay less taxes on your earned income when you're taking depreciation. So you're basically paying less to the IRS. So that's another way you get compensated as an investor. But the fifth way is rent inflation, and over long periods of time, when you control cash flow uh, producing assets, the the rent inflation and the cash flow just gets incredible. It's like, you know, um, Warren Buffett talks about the amount of dividend that he gets from like his C's candy and his Coca-Cola investments. His annual dividend now is greater than what his initial investment is. Hmm. 
it's like it's like insane. So so the lesson there is put your money into cash flow producing investments. The goal is to get your cash flow from your investments to exceed your monthly expenses because that's what freedom means. And hold on to those assets for as long as humanly possible. And by time you get to year, you know, 20, 25, um, you never have to worry about money again the rest of your life, which is kind of a cool place to be. Very cool. You know, I'm I'm thinking about like it's knowledge that you have, but it's also like I'm thinking about the temperament that you would have to have in your line of work as an investor. Like it's you talked about being nervous and not knowing if it's a good deal and being scared. You know, for anyone getting into this line of work, whether you want to own a company or whether you want to buy real estate, I think being aware of like how well do you handle stress, you know, and 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 I think yeah. that's a, that's a big issue because I think if you don't handle stress, this would be probably a not an ideal scenario for you. Yeah, I would also say that handling stress is a is a muscle and it can expand. I remember there was a time when I think we had I think we had something like 16 or 18 homes and you know I was looking at my spreadsheet and all of a sudden I realized holy shit the mortgage payment and the you know the maintenance and the taxes and insurance to debt service that that portfolio was greater than my monthly income and i was like oh my gosh you know i'm in god's hands now <laughs> uh it, it, it really was kind of out of my control and and then i had to kind of deal with myself and go okay let's play some worst case scenarios here like what's the worst amount of vacancy we've ever had in a in a month well one month it was really bad it was a terrible winter we got so much snow and we had four vacancies okay what was the what was the cost on those four vacancies for those months okay well it was only that much all right so could you could you handle that could you cash flow that amount the maximum vacancies yeah i could cash flow that okay how else can you make yourself feel okay about this well you know now we're getting a bigger portfolio uh i want to have some more uh, parachutes, some more safety nets, more insurance. So how do I do that? Well, the business accounts need to have a little more liquidity in it. Each of those units need to be able to handle two or three months vacancies. Um, geez, these first three houses that I bought, they have like 50% equity. I'm going to go take some equity lines, home, home equity lines of credits out on those. So if I ever have a catastrophic event, I've got my liquidity, I've got my cash flow from my job, my liquidity, meaning the amount in those business accounts for two to three months reserves. Plus, I've got three or four different lines of credit. So I guess what I'm saying is getting myself to that place where I could deal with that stress and find ways to, to get out of a worst case scenario came with flexing the muscle between by growing the portfolio and dealing how, learning how to deal with stress but also what are the what are the possible escape routes for worst case scenario yeah no i mean we don't have to tell the story but i always loved your story about being in the hotel and going down to i think it was duncan's event or something and it was just a tough spot but you know you you found a way out of that um you know, in every job, like it's like it's sometimes it takes a while to figure it out. Like for me, flexibility, freedom, not being capped on income, you know, not being told this is what I'm going to make. 
uh, being able to go, you know, coach my kids in sports. You know, those are things that are really important for me in a job. What would you say are some of the must, you know, non-negotiable components of your career um, that are, you know, and I probably could guess a couple of them based on what you've said, but, you know, at your age, looking at like, hey, I've got to have this, this and that. And if I don't have those things, I'm out. Uh, you know, we talked about being an owner and an investor, et cetera. But as far as just things like, uh, you know, maybe it's compensation, maybe it's control of your day, maybe it's the ability to go live in Costa Rica for, you know, six months with your family. Uh, what are some of the things that you would say to people that if they got into your line of work as an investor or just in the mortgage world, some of the components of the job or career that they would have? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the 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 name of the hotelier that Tim brought um, to one of our one of our events, Dirk. Uh, if you remember, let me know. But he said, you know, the first half of your life is for acquisition to acquire as much as possible in terms of accomplishments and income and 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 assets, and then the second half the uh this the second half of your life is a, is about attunement and then retuning your life or your lifestyle to fit the way you want to live and so for the first 10 years i didn't care about needing freedom i didn't care about any of that stuff the only thing i cared about was you know can i can i find success in what i'm doing can I find fulfillment in what I'm doing? Do I like serving people and dealing with them in this profession? And then number three was, can I find, can I use leverage? And I realized that, you know, each of my referral partners, my realtors, my builders, my real estate investors that I made relationships with, they were all leverage points because once I did a good job for them and at, trained them how to introduce me, then they became like my downline, like a multi-level marketing, right? And so I had leverage. And then when I started to build a team, I was like, oh man, now I can teach what I know to 20 people and then they can go do that things and it, and it creates leverage. The reason why I liked real estate was I could put 5% down, wait for two years, rent that property out, and then go put another 5% down on a new property. So I was using dollars as leverage to control that asset. So what I wouldn't recommend somebody do is put themselves in a job where the, 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 it, they don't have limitless potential and they don't have access to leverage. Like some jobs, it's just like, look, I just need you to do this thing and I'm willing to pay you X number of dollars per hour. You have no leverage. You're only ever going to trade your time and your energy for money. And by the time you pay taxes, you're going to be barely to be able to put food in your mouth. Like that is not a path that I would want to go down. I would want to make sure that I had leverage. Yeah, I love that. Um, as we widen this down, I, I like to ask this question um, to my guests as far as, you know, if you were to rewind the clock and go back coming out of college, uh, you know, I might know the answer to your question or you might know the answer, but would you do anything different? Would you, would you... I mean, buy more properties or would you go into a different industry or would you follow the same path? Mm, that's a great question, man. Um, I'm a firm believer that, you know, every hardship is there to teach us a lesson and um, the obstacle is the way, you know, we've got to work through that obstacle to get ultimately to where we're headed. So I wouldn't want to undo any of the hard times. 
Um, I guess the only thing that I could think of that I would do different was at times in the last 22 years, I kind of pick my foot on and my foot off the investor job. Um, I spent a lot of time and energy and effort in the self-employed role and then in the business owner role. Um, and I would have been even more intentional around the investor quadrant and my time and energy there because there were years that went by where we didn't acquire a property. And I look back and I went, what the hell was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably the only thing I would say is I would have started putting, I, I would have never have taken my eye off of acquiring more cash flow producing assets. One more question for you. Um, so let's just say you can't invest in real estate. You can't lend money out for real estate. What's a dream job? Like the, you know, something that you go to bed at night or you're, you're hanging out with your family around the fire or your son. And like, if you could just do anything, anything, I mean, not everything's off the table. What do you have a thought on what that would be? Yeah. I teach people how to buy real estate and invest in real estate. Uh, I, I would love to coach. Um, I I love I love kids, so I I could see myself uh, running a little mountain bike camp or some sort of a camping experience. I don't think kids get out in the nature as much. So if it wasn't in real estate or investing, it would be something to do with kids, fitness, outdoors. And if that can be done on a mountain bike, I'm in. Send me your business plan. I love it. Is there anything? <laughs> is there uh, anything that you felt like you wanted to say that you didn't uh, along these lines? Well, I haven't told you that I love you yet, so I should definitely remind you how much I love you and I miss you. Yeah. And uh, I, I just want to uh, find every opportunity for us to hang out more. We will see each other soon. I know. Looking forward to it, brother. Josh, thanks for taking the time, my friend. My pleasure. Hope this was fun and valuable for everybody. Thank you, buddy. <laughs>